This podcast includes explicit language. It might also include some implicit language, too. It's Friday, September 28th. Welcome to The Gist. I'm Isaac Butler, filling in for Mike Pesca. You may know me as the writer and host of Slate's Lend Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics. I'm also a frequent contributor here, mainly in the culture pages, and the co-author with Dan Coys of The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. Now, when Mike and Daniel asked me to guest, it was a more innocent time. Late August 2018. Troy Sivan was burning up the pop charts, and we were all talking about a little movie called Crazy Rich Asians. When I agreed, we had no idea what kind of week it was going to be. And I gotta say, people, this is a real crapperoo of a week to be guest hosting on a Friday. I mean, everything was of course going to be dominated by the Supreme Court, but even if you took that away, this would be a huge week to cover. I mean, remember when this happened? My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America's so true. (laughs) Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. That was three days ago. Three days. Three days. And it was only a couple of days ago that Trump, clearly infuriated that his own Supreme Court pick was getting all the news attention, called a solo press conference in which he said such totally normal things as. And they know it's a big, fat con job. And they go into a room and I guarantee you, they laugh like hell at what they pulled off on you. But this isn't an episode of Trumpcast. It's the gist. And there's plenty of non-Trump news from this week, too. On Tuesday, Bill Cosby was sentenced to three to ten years in prison and will be labeled a violent sex offender to his dying day. Yesterday, the SEC announced they're suing Elon Musk for making false and misleading statements to investors because of all those tweets about taking Tesla private. Just today, Facebook announced a massive data breach that may have affected 90 million customers. And the Washington Post discovered that the Trump administration is claiming the temperatures will rise so much by the year 2100 that regulating vehicle emissions is pointless. Which means we've gone from, oh, climate change is a Chinese conspiracy, to climate change is real but not caused by humans, to climate change is real and caused by humans but the worst case scenarios are preposterous, to it's real and caused by humans and we are also colossally fucked that there's no point in doing anything about it. Kristen Nielsen may have lied to Congress about family separation. Dunkin' Donuts is changing its name to Just Dunkin'. Don't you wish we lived in a world where we had so few things to worry about we could, like, do a whole spiel about that? And most importantly, Cher released an album of ABBA covers. I mean, come on. In the spiel today, Brett Kavanaugh, conspiracy theorist. But first, I'm joined by Heidi Schreck and Oliver Butler. Schreck is the writer and performer of What the Constitution Means to Me, currently running at New York Theatre Workshop. And Oliver Butler, no relation, is the director of the show. I can hear it, the rain. One more 
I'm joined now by Heidi Schreck and Oliver Butler, who are the writer, performer, and director, respectively, of What the Constitution Means to Me, running through October 21st at New York Theatre Workshop. Heidi, Oliver, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So I guess we should start with describing kind of what the show is. So what is What the Constitution Means to Me? What the Constitution Means to Me is a play based on a contest I did as a 15-year-old kid called the American Legion Oratory Contest. I traveled the country giving speeches about the Constitution at these contests, and I was able to pay for my entire college education this way. I decided about 10 years ago to kind of recreate and resurrect, I guess, the contest uh, because I was thinking a lot about the Constitution for various reasons and I thought it would be a fun, fascinating thing to revisit. So, uh, yeah, so I created this show that is essentially me returning to visit my 15-year-old self making these speeches. Mm. And it seems to me that, you know, one of the arguments the show is making is that, you know, you audience member wouldn't expect a show about the Constitution to include all this stuff about domestic violence, sexual abuse, the the woman, a woman's life, her place in society, yes. these, these histories, but that you actually can't talk about the Constitution without talking about that stuff. Absolutely. And so I was just I, I was just curious about, you know, how you made those links. You know, have you always thought about it like, well, you know, you have this amazing line. Our bodies have been left out of the Constitution. Right. Did that come? as a result of kind of looking at your history have you always felt like as you looked at the document like hey there's this big piece missing or or you know where'd that come from as a 15 year old i felt like the document was a stunning work of genius and look i'll still i mean it is a work of genius i did not see that i was left out of it or that women's bodies had been left out of it i actually didn't understand that on any kind of visceral level until I started researching the show. And I began with my family. So one of the prompts for the contest is that you're supposed to draw a personal connection between your own life and the Constitution, which at 15, you might imagine is difficult to do. Uh, And I just decided to take that prompt uh, as far as I could take it. And in doing that, I discovered, first of all, the history of violence in my family. And also, I discovered how intricately that was connected to our Constitution. So I began studying a lot of cases like the Jessica Gonzalez versus Castle Rock case in 2005, the Supreme Court decision that basically closed down the possibility for women to seek uh, help for domestic violence from our Constitution, from our Supreme Court. I just, in researching my own family history, began to stumble upon all the ways in which the Constitution is not protecting women, or at least the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution is not protecting women. So how is the uh, what is it like (laughs) doing a show about the Constitution as we seem to tumble into a constitutional crisis? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is our dream for the show right now to be doing it at this moment. When we did it a year and a half ago at Club Thumb, 
that was also a sort of a massive moment. It was before the Me Too uh, movement had started and become, you know, mainstream. And some of the most like horrendous, now famous stories had come out to sort of start that movement. So the world had changed a lot between when we did that and when we did it in Berkeley. And I think between and now we're on the edge of an election. I have to say, I you know, you always want the theater you're working on to feel sort of vital. And I feel like I've probably said at times in my life where I'm like, you know, now more than ever, this play I'm working on, <laughs> you know, but now I feel like, oh, here I get to be like, no, now more than ever, we're doing a show that I hope has some little push to get people to examine their own histories and run for office and actually open the Constitution up and say, no, I have a right to have an opinion about this as well. Mm. You, you know, I, I was thinking today that one of my favorite Simpsons episodes is the one where Homer tries to quit drinking. And there's a line at the end where they say to beer, the cause of and solution to all life's problems or something like that. And, <laughs> and so I, I'm wondering, like, is the Constitution the beer of, of, of our society? Is it the cause of and the solution to all our problems? I, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I go. Yes. Yeah. Right, because it seems to me that that's the sort of like tension. That's the dialectic in yes, the play, right? That, that is the question at the heart of the play. Yeah, and you and you end the show with this debate about whether we should scrap the Constitution and start over, or keep it in its current form and continue tinkering with it to try to, you know, as the arc of history bends towards justice. And I, does has having that debate night after night, month after month, changed your point of view on the Constitution as you've had to kind of sharpen your points? My point of view, yes, has transformed. I will say this though I always want to say this I don't actually think we should scrap the constitution <laughs> I, I don't think I would make this show unless I had a deep faith in the document and I do however I will say just the practice of debating it every night has made me view it in a in a new way I didn't realize before I started making this show how many countries in the 20th and 21st century had made positive rights constitutions, that is, constitutions that provide people with things like uh, the right to health care, the right to a basic standard of living, the right to um, equal education. Um, I didn't realize that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said that she would advise other countries not to base their constitution on ours, but to base it, say, on South Africa's. Uh, it just had never occurred to me before I started creating this a decade ago that there might be better models. I really was, a, you know, a true believer, one of the faithful. And doing this show has caused me to question uh, many things. Particularly the idea that if the primary goal of the document, as many people believe, is to protect us from the government, right? To give us negative rights. That that somehow is 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 a neutral idea. When in fact, I think what I'm understanding now is that it's actually a way of perpetuating inequality, of perpetuating violence. That is, if you sort of do nothing, are you actually perpetuating inequality? So this is the thing I'm grappling with. I just want to say that, yeah, that what I've just come to question is all the things I believed about the document, which is that it was a really effective tool of justice. I know I, I, I'm no, no longer sure I believe that. 
this piece, what the Constitution means to me, it's this public performance in which you're trying to carve a space for the stories of women within the edifice of the Constitution and our government. And we're actually about to watch a very different kind of public performance where that's on the table or maybe not on the table. Who knows? Which is to say the Kavanaugh hearings. As we're watching this process unfold, you two who you know have such a great understanding of public, you know, what should we be looking for as we're watching these committee hearings, as we're thinking about this process? Well, I do have to say that one of the big takeaways I've had, and when Heidi talks about the, the problems of the Supreme Court, I think we really get at some of it in the play. I had this idea of Supreme Court justices as being, you know, the sort of like neutral arbiters of truth. The umpires, they're just calling yeah, balls and strikes. They're just calling balls and strikes. <laughs> and, and really, more than you can imagine, like, do yourself a favor and go and listen to some of these cases on OIA. They are all, you can even tell, even in some of the driest, like, least interesting cases, they are all self-serving human beings who are pushing for a side. Like, there is no sort of neutral arbiters of, I mean, some more than others, but it just, it, it actually infuriates me and makes me think like, wait, I thought these people were smart and that I was just supposed to let them tell me what it means. And now I'm just like, no, they're all self-serving. They're all trying to sort of make their own lives better or push their own personal interests. I have every right as much as them to talk about this. For me, I feel like the thing that is getting lost or at least is in danger of getting lost is is simply the the larger conversation around sexual assault and its prevalence in our culture. That has been, you know, the huge revelation of this past year is just how common it is. I just feel like it's very difficult to keep the conversation focused on this very crucial fact. And instead, we get distracted with conversations about like, what will happen to these men? Are men being uh, falsely accused? Have we gone too far? I just, to, to me, and this is part of, you know, the motivation behind doing the show right now is like just to keep it centered in something that I, I feel like our culture is just finally starting to widely accept, which is just that this is one of the most serious human rights violations in our country. And it and almost every woman goes through some form of it. And it's it's obviously a very big deal to me because of my family history. My mom was speaking out about she's a survivor and she was speaking out, you know, in the 80s. I remember she wrote a letter to the editor supporting a, a young woman who had been sexually assaulted, stating her own story and saying, young woman, I believe you. And I just I feel like finally we're at a point in the culture where people are starting to believe. And I just want the conversation to continue. And I want it not to be um, set aside in favor of worrying mostly about men and, and this conversation's effect on them. Can I say, listening to Heidi talk about the importance of keeping the story focused on the women uh, and the survivors versus like the you know, Brett Kavanaugh's life after this uh, experience and thinking about the theatrical context of this, I think about what makes these hearings important theater is that it ends up being this place where people are sort of seeing their own stories play out. And I think that is important. I mean, part of what's engaging is that the pieces are very simple. 
you know, I mean, the stories are complex and there's much to learn. But when you think about that in the theatrical context, you think like, okay, what are the experiences? There are all these all these women in the in the world and in the country who have uh, survived uh, assaults and attacks. They are possibly seeing themselves in this woman coming forward and thinking about the times that they either did or did not come forward with their own stories and how it was heard or not heard by the men uh, in power uh, who could have done something about it. I mean, it's sort of it it ends up being this perfect uh, thing to allow your own story to play out. And I think for some people that's reliving trauma. And for other people, it's reliving trauma. Maybe fi- maybe we'll find some sort of closure in that or it's going to send us down some new path and just expose more of the um, more of the problems that are going to need to be addressed. So uh, Heidi Shrek, Oliver Butler, no relation. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thanks for I, having it's us. Great to talk to you. Awesome. And now, the spiel. So, for those of you who don't know me, I'm something of an enthusiast, maybe even a a connoisseur of conspiracy theories. Now, before you start laughing or maybe switch over to another podcast, let me just say, conspiracy theories, they don't have to be false. And they don't have to be outlandish. And they've had enormous power in American civic life. It's not all blood-drinking reptile aliens who use the moon as a hollow message transmitting base are the reason why school shootings have gotten more frequent stuff. The Declaration of Independence, for example, lays out a criminal conspiracy to violate the rights of people living in the colonies. Technically, the 9-11 Commission report is a kind of conspiracy theory. We went to war with Iraq over a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories are nothing more than a way of creating narrative out of events. You have these disparate pieces of evidence and things that have happened and you stitch them together with causality. And this very week, a conspiracy theory might be what saves the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. When I did at least okay enough at the hearings that it looked like I might actually get confirmed, a new tactic was needed. Some of you were lying in wait and had it ready. This first allegation was held in secret for weeks by a Democratic member of this committee and by staff. It would be needed only if you couldn't take me out on the merits. When it was needed, this allegation was unleashed and publicly deployed over Dr. Ford's wishes. That, of course, is the man of the hour himself, Brett Kavanaugh, a guy who loves beer and has never disrespected a woman ever in his life, ever. Really, we promise you, never, ever. Kavanaugh's conspiracy theory goes like this. The Democrats, desperate to figure out some way to sink his nomination, sit on this allegation they have against him until the 11th hour and then leak it to the press. And this conspiracy, well, like all good ones, It goes all the way to the top. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit, fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. 
So there you have it. This is the nominee to the Supreme Court arguing that outside lefty groups got together with Chuck Schumer and Dianne Feinstein and maybe the Clintons, and together they planned this hit. Now, what's particularly brilliant about this theory is that it does not require anyone to come to any conclusions about Kavanaugh's first accuser, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. In fact, it allows Kavanaugh and the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee to paint Kavanaugh and Ford as joint victims of the committee's process. They're partners in pain. In this version of the story, Ford is misremembering who she was assaulted by, and the Democrats are taking advantage of her. As for the other accusations, well, in Kavanaugh's words, they're crazy stuff. I don't find this conspiracy theory particularly plausible. Why? Well, because there's no evidence to support it. According to Dr. Ford herself, she wrote a letter containing her accusations and requesting anonymity over the summer. She had originally decided she wouldn't come forward, and then she changed her mind once the press got wind of the letter. You have to either believe Ford is lying, which Kavanaugh and the GOP have gone to great lengths to say they don't, or you have to think Feinstein leaked the letter in coordination with other Democrats who had these other accusers, who I guess presumably these accusers are all liars, ready to pounce. Also, the Clintons are in there somewhere. I don't know. And we also have to ask, why would they do it with this nomination? Why not do it to Neil Gorsuch? Gorsuch was the guy taking the seat Democrats feel was stolen from Merrick Garland. Gorsuch was the actual vote making sure that the court would remain dominated by conservatives. If the Dems manage to shit-can Kavanaugh and win the Senate in November, the only thing that's going to happen is some other Federalist Society-approved, Harvard or Yale-educated jar of mayonnaise will be confirmed in the lame-duck session. But even if you hand-wave past all that, could you honestly say, watching the Democrats completely blow their shot at questioning Kavanaugh yesterday, that these are masterminds coordinating some grand months-long conspiracy? So are you saying that that is a substitute for an investigation by the FBI? And why not agree to a one-week pause to allow the FBI to investigate all these allegations. Ask him to suspend this hearing and nomination process until the FBI completes its investigation of the charges made by Dr. Ford and others. Are you willing to ask the White House to conduct an investigation by the FBI? That you would want the FBI to investigate those claims and clear it up once and for all. The Democrats on the Judiciary Committee failed to get Kavanaugh to answer even simple yes or no questions and let him filibuster through their time wildly. They even apologized to him repeatedly. But sure, yeah, they're a bunch of regular Kaiser Soze's planning every meticulous detail out, waiting for the right time to strike. But you know what? It turns out that it doesn't matter how implausible this theory was or how easily we could all mock it on Twitter. And mock it, we all did, because we were not the intended audience. The intended audience of this performance of white male grievance and conspiracism was the GOP base. And that base is led by a man famous for his love of grievance and conspiracism. They're actually con artists because they know how quality this man is and they've destroyed a man's reputation and they know it's a big, fat con job. And they go into a room, and I guarantee you, they laugh like hell at what they pulled off on you 
and on the public. They laugh like hell. One thing you learn when you study conspiracism in America is that it knows no party or ideology. It may actually be its own ideology, independent of liberalism or conservatism, libertarianism or authoritarianism. But it flourishes amongst people who are out of power. You can see this in the left's enthusiasm for stories about Russian interference in the last election. True or false, it helps explain how we managed to lose the most winnable election in a hundred years. But the remarkable feat the Republicans have managed to pull off in this century is convincing themselves and their voters that they are oppressed, even when they have all the power. And thus, conspiracy theories have become an incredibly effective tool in their arsenal. Part of the dark genius of the Republican strategy during the hearings has been to make it seem like the Democrats are responsible for the committee's process, when this process and its artificial midterm election-determined deadlines are entirely up to the GOP. This reached a particularly chutzpah-filled moment here. Are you... Bart Kavanaugh that he's referring to, yes or no? That's You'd have to ask him. Well... I agree with you there. The Democrats can't ask Mark Judge, of course, because the Republicans won't subpoena him. This allows the Republicans in turn to claim the Democrats are smearing Kavanaugh without allowing for a real process to evaluate the claims against him. But again, it doesn't really matter that I don't buy any of this because I am not a Republican voter. I'm not a supporter of President Trump. I'm not a big fan of Lindsey Graham. But we should all stop and consider the implications of that. Because the implications here are that the Republican Party has fully decided that the courts are simply an arena for the exercise of political power, and thus that their legitimacy does not matter. It does not matter that Kavanaugh will be confirmed with uninvestigated, credible claims of sexual assault against him. It doesn't matter that even absent those claims, there was a good case to be made against him, including how little we actually know of his tenure in the Bush administration. And how often he's misrepresented himself under oath during this process. All that matters is that their guy can get on the court where he can help undo the gains of the 20th century. So an implausible conspiracy alleged by a guy who has gone out of his way to hide his record and is incapable of answering a simple yes or no question has managed to get his nomination back on track and through the Judiciary Committee. And it did that through changing the conversation to who has or has not violated procedural norms. It did that through changing the conversation to be about white male anger and the pain of being accused. And it's successful because he's taken the narrative back, simply denying the allegations left a vacuum. Claiming to be the victim of a vast left-wing conspiracy fills that vacuum. Now, with two rival stories to evaluate, it can be easy to lose sight of so much. It can be easy to lose sight of how this is for a seat on the highest court in the land. For life. It can be easy to lose sight of the rushed, artificial, politically motivated timetable all of this is taking place under. And it can be easy to lose sight of this. Brett groped me and tried to take off my clothes. He had a hard time because he was very inebriated and because I was wearing a one-piece bathing suit underneath my clothing. I believed he was going to rape me. I tried to yell for help. When I did, Brett put his hand over my mouth to stop me from yelling. This is what terrified me the most and has had the most lasting impact on my life. 
It was hard for me to breathe, and I thought that Brett was accidentally going to kill me. Brett's assault on me drastically altered my life. For a very long time, I was too afraid and ashamed to tell anyone these details. I did not want to tell my parents that I, at age 15, was in a house without any parents present, drinking beer with boys. I convinced myself that because Brett did not rape me, I should just move on and just pretend that it didn't happen. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bianame. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. I'm Isaac Butler. Um Peru, de Peru, du Peru. Thanks for listening.